And so we know that when you twist, you increase your risk of um, hit related injuries. And then we also know that if you run in a straight line, you also really increase your risk of hit related injuries. And a lot of that comes down to the cumulative um, repetitive force within the joint. And what we know is bones generally don't like reciprocal movement. So the same movement over and over and over again. So running in a straight line is generally one of the worst things you can do for bones in lots of ways and joints and you start to increase that impact loading. And then we also know that women as a rule will have a much higher risk of running related injuries in the hip and men as a rule will have a much higher risk of groin related injuries. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast features James Moore, and if you listen to the first couple of seconds of this episode, you'll understand why I was so desperate to get James on. James has got a CV longer than anyone's, I think, who have been on the podcast and worked with an incredible array of athletes in an unbelievably elite setting, as well as being a multiple business owner and doing everything under the sun to make us all feel ashamed and uh, very, very inferior. So in this episode, we dive into hip and groin injuries and hip and groin pain, what we can do to mitigate any risk of injury uh, when it comes to them two areas, and also what we can do to rehabilitate those areas should an injury occur. So a really interesting topic that I dived into with Ender King quite a while ago, so if you haven't checked those out and you're interested in this area, they're definitely worth checking out. But this is a superb chat with James. We also have a little chat around blood flow restriction training, which is Getting lots of publicity at the minute, and we just have a little dive into blood flow restriction and what James thinks it can do for clinicians. So, I hope you enjoy this episode with James, and as always, would love your feedback. This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Black Box Fitness. Black Box Fitness are leaders in performance training equipment and facility design. Blackbox are specialists in designing and building performance facilities for sports teams and strength and conditioning coaches. Blackbox manufacture and distribute a full range of strength training equipment from their headquarters in Belfast right across Europe. If you want to learn more about Blackbox, check out their website blackboxfitness.com or follow them on social media at blackboxfitness. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com 
or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And this episode is also sponsored by Satanta College. Led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, Satanta College provides coaches with the opportunity to take their career to the next level with qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science. Satanta's blended learning approach ensures you have flexibility to continue your studies alongside your coaching practice. And lectures are delivered online with practical workshops held in locations across Ireland, the UK, the United States, India and South Africa. Courses are designed by experts in the field of sports science, including Professor Ian Jeffries and Des Ryan, with a focus on practically applying the most current methodologies in your day-to-day coaching. Applications are now open for the MSc in Performance Coaching and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Psychology, along with a range of strength and conditioning programs from certificate to degree level. Visit stantacollege.com for more information and how to apply. So without further ado, over to the episode with James. James Moore, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you very much for for inviting me on board. Appreciate it's it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for fitting me in a very, very busy schedule. It's uh, it's uh, it's an honour to have you on, so thank you very much. No, Ed, absolute pleasure. Anyone doesn't know who you are, James, would you mind giving us a little bit of an intro on you? Just a, a minute or two, and then we'll dive straight into... Uh, the talking points, which are going to focus around hip and groin injuries. Sure, no problems at all. Um, so physiotherapist, qualified 25, nearly 26 years now, studied at King's, uh, did a postgrad um, in advanced physiotherapy in Australia at University of Queensland, but specialised in neurophysiology pain science, and then did a second postgrad in engineering at Strathclyde with a, obviously a biomechanics angle to it, but it was more of a, an engineering Um Clinically worked in cricket for about five years, uh, overlapping with track and field athletics for nine years through two Olympic cycles, Beijing and London. Um, England rugby, 2009 to 2012. Uh, Saracens, head of medical there for a little over a year and then was going to have a bit of a uh, career break um, because I felt like I'd done rather a lot by 2012, 2013. And then kind of fell into heading up the um, intensive rehabilitation unit for the British Olympic Association and rather fortuitously got made um, head of performance for Team GB through Sochi, um, Rio, Pyeongchang and then setting the strategy through to Tokyo 2020. So headed up uh, all the science and medicine team for Rio and was again very, very lucky to be awarded the role of deputy chef de mission so like the second in command there's three deputies behind the chef for for that and then um since then again decided gonna have a bit more of a career break in 2019 these things don't always work out i'll take a, <laughs> a message somewhere there um and sort of again studied consulting for andy murray um around his hip after his hip arthroplasty surgery and now sort of lead his team uh, from a science and medicine point of view and look at the strategy, trying to get him back com- competitive on the, on the inter- I mean, he is competitive now, but really competitive on the international stage. And then we've got a, a clinic in Harley Street, which I've run for 11 years, um, called the Centre for Health and Human Performance. We've got an education company for physios, which is both online and face-to-face. And that's where all the passion for hip and groins come from, where I've been teaching on that for... 16 17 uh well since 2004 so 18 years um and then yeah just some other consultancy work that i do um around and just problem solving so 
um, pretty varied. I've got a, uh, just final two things, I've got a background in strength and conditioning, trained in the US about uh, 22 years ago, and a background in exercise physiology with um, uh, American College of Sports Medicine. So quite varied really, um, and just, yeah, just try and help people and help athletes. I'm going to have to let you go, James, because you're making me feel like an absolute fraud. I'm just I'm just very very lucky I've been right place right time in my career and um and lots of people will ask me you know have I shaped it and I again just opportunities have come up and I've left jobs I've walked away from different things etc and uh I've always been very lucky to find something bigger and better afterwards so I'm very lucky man how do you juggle being a business owner with obviously a clinician as well do you enjoy that side of it or not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I love um, I love challenge. I love variety, um, etc. Like I, I think um, before it would have been really difficult in the sense when I was working full time in elite sport and full time for the Olympics because that was a, a pretty full on job. You know, they used to have about seven people all working part time for 2012 and then um, they all variously moved on for different reasons. And then I came on board and kind of tried to take on seven people's roles, which is uh, just gives you some insight into sort of my mentality, I guess, then in lots of different ways. Um, but look, we've, we've set the business up really well that it runs very well through our operations and management team. And then I can add a little bit of extra insight from a clinical point of view. And I just really enjoy coming back and trying to provide my uh, skills that I've learned within sport back to the everyday person, but then also treat and consult for um, other athletes in different fields. So we still get a lot of professional and Olympic athletes coming through the door that want second opinions on stuff and want a bit of direction and guidance as to where to go. So I've got the balance quite nice. It's two days a week clinical and then the rest of the time to sort of develop other areas and work with Andy or work on the business, etc. So nice and just a bit of a, a fanboy i suppose is, is andy on track to to where he wants to be at this point in in the rehab or along the ah, return to performance journey from a physical point of view we're in a really really good place um i mean he played nearly 12 13 weeks in a row last year at the end of the season off the back of having some pretty major niggles and came through that without any issues he's come through the australian open and um, if you are a fanboy and you watch the Basil Asfili, that was a nearly a, mm. a four-hour match, and he yeah. came through that without really any issues and felt really good for the for the Tarot match. I think as and you really indicate this, the difference between return to um, return to sport versus return to performance is probably different. So one, his expectation is super super high and rightly so he's still got the talent he's still got the tennis skills he's still got the the tennis iq to play at the highest level i think there's no substitute for missing what is in essence four years of competitive play um if not more slightly more than that if you go back to 2016 i think he played 87 matches in 2016 when he was world number one you know now we're probably i think last year we played about 40 so we're at 50 percent and so you've got to build that again if you want to go acute chronic workload ratios or if you want to go right you've just got to build tolerance you've got to build mindset you've got to build focus you've got to build the repetitive skills and then you've also got to think about that top end 10 percent fitness where he's fit like his vo2 max is low 60s which is great for um but at his best, he was low 70s, so he's fit, he's strong, he's deadlifting 270 kilos, 
he's quarter squatting 260 you know as an 84 kilo male so he's a he's a strong boy he can produce 1500 watts on a watt bike so physically we're in a good place right but um that what we've got to do is really transfer that into the consistency on the tennis court and that just takes time that takes good coaching that takes good support and continuity from the rest of the team to to help him to to, to deliver nice excellent well let's let's dive into the topic of the chat which was hip and groin injuries hip and groin pain yeah probably best place to start for me would be to ask you why athletes get hip and groin pain in the first place <clears throat> Great question. I mean, look, I, I don't know that we have all of the answers yet. So from a medical point of view, we'd call that kind of our etiology. Do we have the exact etiology? I don't think we do. I think we have strong indicators. So we know that if you play a kicking sport, for example, so football, rugby, Aussie rules, Gaelic, etc., you've got a much higher percentage chance. You're probably three times more likely to overload your pubic joint and your adductors than you are in any other sport. However, when you start to shift from a kicking sport to twisting, turning sports, and let's call that non-running based, primary running based sports. So let's say it's badminton, tennis, squash, ice hockey, short track, speed skating. Like you might run as part of your conditioning to supplement the sport, but it's not a primary requirement of what you have to do. Yes, you're sprinting on the tennis court, but you may be covering... 3k in a two hour three hour match right so compared to let's say in football and so we know that when you twist you increase your risk of um hit related injuries and then we also know that if you run in a straight line you also really increase your risk of hit related injuries and a lot of that comes down to the cumulative um repetitive force within the joint and what we know is bones generally don't like reciprocal movement so the same movement over and over and over again so running in a straight line is generally one of the worst things you can do for bones in lots of ways and joints and you start to increase that impact loading and then we also know that women as a rule will have a much higher risk of running related injuries in the hip and men as a rule will have a much higher risk of groin related injuries so when you put all of that together um i think it's really difficult to find a place to kind of hide on the sports field because if you're running in a straight line that's your half marathons your marathons your triathletes etc your 10ks your track athletes if you're kicking changing direction that's all of your you know your your, your ball sports in lots of ways um or your mainly football code shall we call it in lots of ways and i left rugby league out of that as well which would also be part of that sort of equation so i think there's a huge risk just within sport I think then we then can then look at the other side of it and say, well, you know, I would call it the lumbo-pelvic hip complex because I don't think you can say it's hip and groin or it's hip and pelvis. It's the whole thing as a unit. But the whole thing as a unit, when you're looking at power creation, that's the hub for power creation really within um, speed and power-based athletes. So yes, soleus might be one of the strongest muscles in the body if not the strongest but when you're really looking at peak torque in high level sprinting and running and kicking and the speed in which you kick a ball you're talking way over nine times body weight on impact loading and the triple jump it's like we measured it with philip sadoru when we were working with him and that's 15 times body weight going through his hip so the forces are just huge and that really then just comes down to capacity tolerance and how much you can build up so Again, I would just call it supply and demand. There's a huge demand from the sport 
and then you've got to build the supply up for the individual and if you don't get that right and that could be in training capacity or individual capacity that's when you're going to potentially start to get an overload in, in injury so what is it the difference what are the differences between male and female and why the, the site of injury changes is it purely anatomical um no i don't think it is um because uh, for a number of different reasons, although I, the reason why I hesitate is there's more evidence coming out more recently starting to look at that. So, again, the advantage of being slightly old um, is that you can remember 15, 20 years ago when we started looking at the difference and we talked about, well, width of pelvis and angles going into the groin, much like you would talk about with a Q angle for a knee and patellofemoral joint overload. And really, there was no evidence around it. And so the the morphological so the structure of the body may not make a difference certainly muscle mass and the forces being produced may make a difference and there's an argument certainly from um, bill myers in the us who deals with all the core muscle injuries that you would hear about particularly if you watch american football um where he'll talk in terms of the muscle mass and the lines of force that's created where the lines of force from the male pelvis tends to be more straight down and less diagonal, whereas the female lines of force in the muscles may be slightly more diagonal. However, there is increase in evidence more recently on pubic joint related around um, the angles at the pubic joint. And certainly someone like Professor Shilders in London at Fortius has looked at the quality of the plaque and the anterior pubic ligaments and how that's significantly stronger in the female pelvis than it is in the male. Um, and a number of years ago, I used to run a complex groin clinic with a doctor called Mark Witherspoon who works for Southampton in England cricket and then another radiologist guy called David Connell who's like one of the leading lights in Australia. And what we found was our main population for groin pain was young men playing sport, either weekend warriors, recreational athletes or professional athletes. And our female population were usually young athletic women trying to get back to sport or physical activity um, too quickly postpartum and so something's happening postpartum where we believe that you're probably overstretching or disrupting those anterior ligaments you're losing the ability to control you may not quite have the the muscle coordination or mass and then you you increase the load too quickly and there'll be another other number of other factors around hormonal profile you know elasticity in the system with young women but certainly there's a number of different factors that's not just morphological in nature I remember speaking to Ender King on this this topic and recounted a, a scenario when I was a, uh, as a player at a football club, lower league football club. And it seemed at one point there was, it was almost like every quarter there was a, a player that came up with a groin injury and that person was sent off for surgery. And it was, it seemed a regular thing. I don't know if it was the particular physio that had, I don't know, just, that was his route to, to fix these these problems that, that were occurring. But from your point of view, how can we differentiate who needs surgery and why potentially, maybe using not using that example per se, but using various examples out there where clinicians may think that surgery is the way to go? Yeah, so I think um, the decision-making process around surgery becomes quite multifactorial. Um, and we've certainly advise surgery for a number of different reasons some right some um questionable at different moments in time and it's usually because there's multiple factors influencing the decision making process certainly from a clinical point of view 
Um, I think, uh, you know, I'll start this by just sort of regaling another kind of story that's very similar to yours, but from a slightly different perspective. So I remember when we first started in groins, again, like I said, nearly 18 years ago, and there was a, those of you old enough to remember, there was a guy called Dean Richards, who was an ex-England number eight for yes. rugby yeah. and head coach at Leicester. And the classic was, and I know his physio team very well up there, and the classic was every time they got a groin injury, he would send them down to the surgeon. The surgeon would say they need surgery. The player would get scared, come back, do their rehab really intensively, and invariably they never had surgery because they did their rehab intensively. So, and if I spoke to the late Jerry Gilmore, who I worked with for a very long time, um, and again, he's got more than 30 years worth of experience um, in groins, his comment would be he's seen a significant reduction in groin surgery as there's been an improvement within core stability for want of a better description but in terms of the functional load transfer across the anterior pelvis so there's big components within that so I think from a time point of view there's been a there's been a significant shift having said that you know if we just take football as a as a classic example where we're looking at 16 percent to 20 percent of everybody will have a groin injury or of, of your injury sort of profile so again like you say one in every four one in every five is going to present with something like that the game's faster, the players are bigger, they're stronger, the ball's moving faster on the pitch, you know, and it's in play for longer. So it just increases your exposure. And so while we see this transition, I think we're also still trying to play physically, play catch up towards the sport itself. In terms of just specifically answering it, I think the key really is, is that your physical signs should match up with your subjective complaint of pain. And if the pain is disproportionate to the physical signs, then you've probably got tissue damage beyond the point of repair. When we start to look at groin surgery, whether we're talking abdominal or adductor surgery, my classic would be with abdominal is if they can produce force, but it's painful and you've got any palpable gaps or palpable um, issues within the inguinal canal. Now, whether you're doing that as a practitioner or whether the sports doctor's doing it and they fail a period of rehab whether that's two weeks four weeks six weeks you'll generally know within two to four weeks whether they're going to um, succeed within rehab and we've had a number of players come to us professional athletes who we've looked at them and said that nah, this is surgery but they want to go down a conservative route and at two weeks four weeks six weeks they fail their markers and so you then go through that and some and that's a really good process psychologically to let the player adapt as well as you know, tick the boxes in terms of doing your strength work before you go down that route. And then there'll be certain people who've been told they've got surgery, but they've got some obvious deficits. And as they start to load, the pain subsides, but the pain is usually fairly consistent with their physical signs. So it's usually that really trivector pain is disproportionate to physical signs. And then um, they start to fail the loading process where they just can't put enough load through the tissue without provoking symptoms. So is there a particular, and this might be a rehash of what you just said, but yeah, is there particular reasons why certain people recover without surgery and reasons why others don't and have to go that route? Yeah, so I'm not sure that we, again, when we start to look at abdominal-related groin surgery versus adductor-related groin overload, there's so many complex structures from contractile tissue, non-contractile tissue, nerves, and then the bone interface, what we would call the emphasis, um, there as well all of which have different healing time frames 
and a lot of the time in the elite level of sport we don't always give it enough time to heal so the key real question is is get your diagnosis right if you get your diagnosis right then it makes a big difference in terms of where you're trying to go um and that sometimes requires quite extensive sort of workup um in terms of how you look at the the structure in the area and then yeah like, like you rightly say there'll be lots of people who may not have done the specific conditioning in that area for a while and then the tissue has gradually fatigued and been overloaded and as soon as you bring them out of that repetitive strain sort of level in elite sport they can build up their capacity again and, and start to return back I think the final sort of comment on that would be when we're looking at like groin related injuries with kicking it's just the speed that you kick the ball at the speed of limb movement there really is no um, substitute for training that area because you're looking at 500 700 degrees a second the limbs moving at which is you know we can't train that within the physical environment we can start to add in different methodologies to try and condition the tissue but there's a certain component of building capacity on the pitch and building the capacity through training and that you know like any training um, sort of stimulus that needs to be managed very well in terms of um, progressive overload to get the tissue to adapt and sometimes some people just have gone too quickly on that level or they've undercooked it for too long and then they've got a spike in training load and that's what causes the issues and then you get the training load right and they recover much faster so do you think and this is probably jumping a little bit of jumping ahead of, of the of the list that we've we're kind of working through but do you have that do athletes have to stop playing to be able to recover from this as as you as you just mentioned i know this is a, a big question there's lots lots of interplay here but do we have to remove them to uh, to readjust that training load or can we do that on the fly within a training session so they're not missing out on all the all the good stuff that's going on day to day yeah so i mean i think the simple question is is that um most groin overload if we want to give it that kind of umbrella term as opposed to the specifics of the injuries of the different sort of subcategory injuries um you know the classic comment is is they they don't stop you from playing but they just limit your performance so we'll have lots of people that are just feeling like yeah i'm at 60 80 percent I can i can pass the ball i can run but i can't really put some shape on the ball i can't really put my foot through the ball there's you know I have to everything has to be controlled and if I do then I get sharp pain and I'm a bit incapacitated for a couple of minutes and then it kind of settles and I'm able to go again so I think it's very easy to sort of keep people ticking over and manage them and then that comes down to the bigger question as to you know the relevance of the individual you know if they're 80 percent fit are they better than the next person coming in <laughs> etc which are always the arguments that get posed to you by coaches um along those lines so it's finding that balance between meeting the the athlete's demand meeting the coaching demand meeting the sports demand but then also as a medic you know part of our job is to protect the athlete from themselves sometimes um and then and protect the athlete generally but then also as a performance sort of scientist, it's to push them to that red line and get them as close to that red line as possible and keep them there for as long as possible because that's, you know, it's easy to stop injuries. You just don't train very hard is our classic statement. But if I want to win stuff, I've got to go right to that top end um, and push my body a little bit. And that's, that's a difficult balance to strike. But yeah, I mean, I think for the general everyday, it's an overload related injury. So 
if you want to just strip that back, we need to reduce the load and then build it back up in a measured progressive overload uh, sort of manner. And then you can build capacity. So it would mean dropping them out of training, now, whether that means complete reduction in training or whether that means modified load to reduce some of the markers. So the classic would be allow them to run if that's not an issue, but don't allow them to kick as a simple example. So they can do part of the training, but they can't do all the training classically. If that was say something like rugby, you could you could structure that. Football's much harder, so from that perspective. So again, depends on the demands. So our hypothetical athlete has has come in, groin pain. How do we and, and just coming from a, a rehab point of view, how do we decide what we include in that in that rehab program is there is there some basic core um core things that go in there no matter what and is there some supplementary things how do we decide how to uh how to structure that yeah totally so i think the first question is and i think this is probably what i see the most is is does the source of pain and the tissue that is producing pain need to be loaded or deloaded and that's the first question. And I get a lot of people coming in with adductor-related groin problems and adductor tendinopathy, and they've been loaded, but their adductors are the strongest part of the chain. When you assess it, um, and their abdominals or their hamstrings are not functioning as well, and so you need to reduce the adduction load or adductor load, um, depending on how you want to define it, and increase the abdominal hip flexor, hamstring maybe load from that point of view. Um, so that's your kind of first question is, am I increasing or reducing the load? And I think a lot of that comes down to where are we from a capacity and or strength point of view, which requires a little bit more sort of investigation away from just the pathology. And that's part of the trick is examining the individual from a pathology pain source point of view and then examining the individual from a function perspective. Um, if I was to give you some general answers, the adductors are... As, an, as a group of muscles, they adduct and they bring your leg across your body. So they're key within the kicking action, but they're also a, a, a significant hip flexor. And there's an argument that adductor longus is the second most important hip flexor behind iliopsoas. But they're also significant hip extensors. So once you go above 45 degrees hip flexion, they become your most significant hip extensors. And there's some very good squat mechanics research saying, well, actually... The adductors are the main muscles that bring you out of a squat and they're the main muscles that produce hip extension and adductor magnus offloads the hamstrings. And so we see all of that there. So you've then got to understand, well, maybe the adductors are overworking because the hip flexor complex isn't good enough. And iliopsoas, which also has, well, psoas major, has an adduction moment arm about it, um, isn't doing its job properly. So maybe we need to increase iliopsoas. Or maybe the hamstrings and the glutes are not doing their job properly and so we need to increase the hip extension function to take some load off the adductors. And then what makes it a little bit more complicated is that your abdominals also aid within the hip flexion and control hip extension moment arm. But if we deal with the hip flexion sort of moment to it as well, your abdominals also control particularly your oblique side flexion which psoas also controls. So... My right-sided psoas is a controller of left-side flexion. Um, and so that becomes quite critical in terms of the way the abdominals, the hip flexors and the adductors work as a unit and getting what I'd call sort of a synergistic or a balance across that whole pelvis and the anterior chain. 
and certainly we've you know I've gone through that phase in strength and conditioning where everything was about posterior chain and maybe sometimes we don't always focus on the anterior chain enough and how we control that and then we start to look at well my adductors in sprinting which comes all the way back from the Germans from Weimann's research in 1995 they decelerate hip extension in running mechanics so my adductor longus decelerates hip extension so if I spend all my time increasing my glutes and hamstring strength to produce more hip extension torque well then I increase the relative demand on the adductors so our very simple statement is for every adductor load you give somebody you should give them an abdominal load to balance the pelvis for every abdominal load and adductor load you should give them a glute load so that you're always balancing um so if I really simplified all of that down I would say hamstrings first because hamstrings producing that extension moment they also produce adduction moment at the hip and they help to control the pelvis as a primary lever arm for producing posterior pelvic rotation and that becomes quite critical and if the hamstrings are inefficient your adductor load will, will go up then I would look at um, abdominal load in particular oblique bias and uh, what we see is a lot of people that do a lot of oblique control work but they don't do maybe enough hypertrophic stimulus and get enough cross-sectional air enough density of the myofibers so what you then get is you'll get a passive viscoelastic stiffness and the passive viscoelastic stiffness then gives you that control of the pelvis against very high torques without having it to be reflex mediated as a sort of muscle spindle Golgi tendon organ sort of reflex as well even though you're supporting that as you retrain movement and then you support everything with a good sort of hip flexor program as well and that would be the specifics and then my final final comment on that would be I would always pull all of this back to what does normal running look like so normal running is have I got the calf function have I got the quad function have I got the glute function you know etc as a muscle capacity and then what am I looking at technically because if we can't run then we're always going to struggle to kick and then kick on the run as kicking is a flexion to extension sort of open chain movement which is part of what you're conditioning when you're running anyway so hopefully that in a roundabout sort of way gives you lots of different answers but, no, but I, it's I, very it's it's about being addressing the whole kinetic chain for me really of course one thing I just want to pick up on so was it something that you went too deep on in terms of the posterior chain and forgetting the anterior chain? And is that something that changed for a particular reason? Um, no, I don't think it was. I, I think I was just always fascinated that. And again, I think this comes from the athletics background, right? Where um, when you look at track and field athletes, um, everyone go okay posterior chain glutes hamstrings glutes hamstrings producing hip force. but all you have to do is just look at them front on and you know Michael Johnson Mo Farah whether you're looking at a 10k runner or a 400 meter runner they just have humongous quads right so the first point is you have to produce vertical force and that's my kind of engineering background coming in that you know if you go back to even if you go back to Novacek's paper in the whatever that was the 80s on the biomechanics of running the first comment is in order to start running you have to produce vertical force against gravity and that's that's the critical thing and that's all quads and calves and even if you dial forward now to the sort of dawn paper and all the um uh, all of the biomedical engineering stuff that's been done with Marcus Pandy and those guys again now they're just saying right it's all about quads and calves you've got to get that right first to produce your stride length and then once you've got your stride length it's about hip torque to produce stride frequency so stride length gets you up to seven meters a second and then hip torque gets you beyond that so 
I was just always fascinated that we had this very posterior chain bias and we looked at track and field athletes and a lot of them have really amazing anterior chain as well and it's trying to get that balance right so um it's probably not so much that I went too far down the posterior chain route but it was trying to wrestle with myself and really understand well, what's the science between when do I go for what so do I go for anterior chain first to give them the vertical force to allow them to run or do I go for posterior chain to support the groin and take the stress off the groin and give myself lumbopelvic control and hip torque because that's going to be the end stage and that might be the biggest variable that I need to get back first so it's a constant sort of dilemma that you go through as a clinician between well, what do I go through first and where's my lowest hanging fruit for one of a better expression to to get to get the athlete back as quickly as possible um yeah so it's a constant judgment call so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with James hope you're enjoying part one so we're just going to dive deeper again into the hip and groin area when it comes to rehab uh, in the second part coming up we also finish off the chat with a little bit of ch uh, discussion around blood flow restriction training and what it can do for coaches what it can do for clinicians from a performance a recovery and a rehabilitation space as well this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by hawking dynamics hawking dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system the Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. I measure you have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor blue trident which includes ultra high g capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting landing and sprinting, longer life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. And now back to the episode with James. As you'll be more than aware, in the strength and conditioning world, people become obsessed with, with speed development. Yeah. Absolutely obsessed. Now, when it comes to uh, introducing running mechanics, you probably go to any football club, any rugby club now in 2022, and part of a warm-up, with a good, bad, or indifferent, there'll be some sort of introduction of, of running mechanics from the, the performance coach uh, in there. When it comes to mitigating and trying to reduce the risk of hip and groin injuries, and, and run, is it running mechanics 
something and as we know it when it comes to running mechanics and the influence of the athletics and track and field world is that something that is gonna potentially help when it comes to mitigating this risk and if so is that something that you would introduce during a rehab session um to to help these uh, rehabbers along along the uh, return to performance journey <laughs> wow there's a, there's there's a huge amount in that um <laughs> So, yeah, I think I think we just got to start with the first point of call is um, what's what do we think is the minimal dose that we need to to um, apply to the individual to try and reduce the risk, and if that comes in the form of running mechanics or another stimulus, then then what do we need, um, and what's the goal and the outcome of where we are? So, I think if the goal is to produce to give a running mechanic stimulus to improve the technical component of running and get them to run more like sprinters, I think that's really, really difficult. Um, so if I look at, again, I'm very fortunate in my career that I worked with uh, Christine Ahurugu for eight years. But if so, if you look at Christine, as a 400 metre runner, she'll do probably near enough 2,000 metres worth of high quality speed work per session three times a week plus all of the drills which will probably be about a thousand meters 500 to a thousand meters worth of work at the beginning of every session so we're then talking seven and a half to nine thousand meters a week of high quality speed work um, and that's done week in week out nine months of the year before you get to race season from that point of view so the dosage to really get um, good running mechanics and to really condition the tissues to that kind of load is very very high but they're horses for courses that's specific right so if we then flip that to football and we say right well okay you know um, or even rugby and we say well maybe they're doing a thousand meters worth of high quality speed worker per session or per match again it's it's a very very disproportionate amount of load so I don't know that you'll necessarily see the same sort of dose and training stimulus to get the same kind of response. That said, if our goal is to try and condition the tissues to limb speed and to shorter foot contact and to give them some kind of cerebral stimulus, so we're getting a tissue stimulus and we're getting a cognitive stimulus and a sort of a parietal lobe as in getting the right part of the brain to work to get the patterning, from a central nervous system, or if we go down a Franz Bosch point of view, we decentralize it and get the spinal reflex working, um, then yes, I can see that that will have an influence, but we're not trying to turn them into runners. We're just trying to condition the tissue by doing what we're doing, which then the outcome and or the coaching point probably looks slightly different because you're not necessarily saying, well, we need to hit the right positions from a running point of view, but you're saying we need to get quick limb movement and short foot contact, which is a very, very different coaching cue than it would be. I want a high knee. I want you to increase your stride length. I want you to do those sort of things, which is, again, really difficult if you're in football rugby boots on a soft pitch versus you know spikes on a mondo track it's the ground reaction forces are completely different so the elastic moment arms really different um so i think that becomes quite critical in terms of what you're trying to do and where that decision making process comes in um and then i was there was another point i was thinking of but i think i've probably lost my train of thought i just say the part part of the question again if you can remember it because i think um, you went slightly off the cuff no no that's fine um what was it? 
Let's come back. Let's come back. Yeah, I've, got, I've got another point. We, 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 yeah, let's can, go for we, it. We can re- revisit that. So back to the hypothetical rehabber yep. coming through. When it comes to change direction mechanics, sure. is there anything positionally that you're looking for to give you an indication of how that person is successfully navigating that change direction? I was thinking of the the clinician, the coach who's maybe going through this process and, and listening in. Is there any key positions or key things that you're looking for during a change direction that you could potentially communicate with us? Um, yeah, so again, I think that's a really interesting question. We, we address that quite early on in our kind of, in our teaching pattern where you've got a rugby player change of direction and then we've got a basketball player change of direction. So, um, uh, footwear surface makes a huge difference, right? You then got the rugby player, they're keeping their center of mass within their base of support and they're using muscle forces to try and change the direction, whereas the basketball players throwing their center of mass outside of their base of support. And therefore they're using, so the rugby player will be using concentric, eccentric, the, the basketball player will be using isometric sort of contractions predominantly to, to stabilize. I know that there's been a big bunch of work that's been done by Santry commenting on the difference between, you know, high level change of direction versus low level. I think my my comments on where that sits, and I think that's a very good place to start, would be, well, we need to understand that at different speeds. Because, again, if you're testing that over 5, 10 metres and then you're changing direction, well, in 5, 10 metres unless your name's Usain Bolt, I'm only getting up to five meters per second kind of speed before I change direction. Well, that looks really different than if I'm bombing it down the wing as a as a fullback and attacking wing back at seven, nine meters a second, and then I want to change direction. So the, the mechanics change. And then I think the next part you need to understand is, well, if we start to comment on the way people move, which is what those papers have done, and they're great for, for doing that, what we're doing though is we're commenting on what's happening, but we don't necessarily know why. So I might be moving in a particular way because I I don't quite have the right muscle mass, or I've learned to move that way, and that's the most efficient way. And I think some of the best examples is if you can go back to the 2015 World Cup, rugby World Cup, and you watch um I think it's Umunga coming out the back. Um no, it's not among uh, Nonu, sorry, coming out the back and sidestepping the Aussie to to go under the posts to score the try. Like he threw his centre of mass way over to one side, and then gravity. When you throw your centre of mass, gravity is nine point eight one meters per second squared. So he's accelerating at ten meters an hour a second to move around the guy, which is phenomenal at whatever body weight he is. You know, hundred plus kilos. Um, so it looks really, really different, but he's probably got the muscle mass and the strength and the capacity to do that where somebody else possibly wouldn't. And that might be a more efficient way to move to throw your center mass out, but you need to have all the muscle capabilities to do it. So I think it's about trying to coach. When you're looking at this, you then come back to it and look at it in a coaching eye and then say, well, does it look efficient? And is the person moving? And does it look effortless? And does it look free? And I'd almost come back to that and coach the individual around the indiv- the way the individual moves and what feels right, as opposed to necessarily trying to get into very specific sort of criteria of this is how people move with change of direction, which I'm just not convinced that when you, if we were to roll that out 
across lots of different people, lots of different speeds, lots of different surfaces and footwear, I think you're going to see multiple different sort of patterns occurring. And then you start to drill it back down to their, for what I would call their phenotypes, so their muscle strength, their body build, their building, their their morphology, the way their body's built, sorry, I should say. Um, we'll then see there's so many different variables in terms of how that person moves um, in terms of where we're going. And then... Um, I think we bring that back full circle to your question around sprinting um, and pull that all in. Again, I've I've been very, very lucky that we travelled the world with athletics and I worked, because Christine trained with the Jamaicans for a long time, so I worked with Usain's coach for a long time. I worked with Coach Fran Francis with Asafa Powell and those guys for a long time. I worked, We went over and spent time with Mike Smith in LA, etc. So you speak to all of them, they all have their own methodology of running. But if you strip it back and you analyse Michael Johnson, Frankie Fredericks, you know, Asafa, Usain, all the best 20 odd top 100 metre sprinters, they all move differently. So if they all move differently and they're all the best in the world, then maybe there isn't just one way to move. And maybe there's some common denominators about what they're producing when they move which we may or may not know all the facts to yet in terms of vertical force, hip extension, torque, etc. as an example. And then the same thing gets transferred towards change of direction. So we, I think we need to observe the way people move. I think we need to understand it. And then I think we, there's a bit of a judgment call in terms of how you coach it versus what the parameters are around what ideal movement may or may not look like for that person. Just taking a more, I suppose, more global look at that rehab journey, is there any particular markers that you would look for throughout that however many weeks has been predicted that this this player will get back to, to full training? Any particular markers that you would look at, no matter what that person presents in terms of how they run, how they move, uh, in terms of a, a structure? Sure. So I think the the way we like to work and I like to work in particular is we have different markers for different stages of the rehab. So early stage rehab um, may well be what well, can I get the abdominal to adductor or adductor to abductor ratios right as a very simplistic thing the evidence is very clear in the research and so that's a good starter for 10 but as you start to get into um, more specifics then I think those markers need to move away from pathology which is what I would look at in the first instance of pathology and pain markers so whether it's squeeze test whether it's strength ratios so it's all about provocation to then kind of, for want of a better description, we have a seven-stage kind of rehab process. But if I went to sort of stage two in sort of um, sort of global terms, now I'd be starting to look at, well, not necessarily provocation and pathology, but function around the groin. So that's where the adductors to abdominals, adductors to hip flexor ratio may well kick in. And then as we start to move into stage three, as we're kind of getting ready for return to running, well, now this all has to transition into running specific markers. So if I was to go through that in a very clinical sort of setting, I would say I want stage one, I want um, reduction in pain on any of my key marker tests. So classically, that would be a squeeze test or it might be some kind of abdominal load test or it might be some kind of adductor torque test. Um, and that's my sort of clinical marker on the bed. But I'd also want to see some improvement within adductor muscle strength so either it was low and around 20 kilograms or something like that um or you know two 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 kilograms per um or 
two newtons per kilogram sort of um, force going across the groin and I want to see that progressing up to 25 sort of kilograms or so in terms of ability to take load and stress through the area but I'd also want to see some kind of improvement in capacity within the rehab setting so can they maintain a, an adductor side bridge can they do ball squeezes for longer with more force can they um, do more abdominal loading for a longer period of time than what they could do before so we're seeing something on the plinth something that's functional and then something that's kind of movement function specific if you want to describe it in that way then when we get to stage two well now it's about balancing the pelvis so I'd want to see adductor to abdominal ratio but I'd also want to see adductor to hip flexion ratios and hamstring to hip flexion ratios starting to come in as a just an individual talk around that that ipsilateral side so same side so right hamstring to right hip flexor right adductor to right abductor and I think just looking at that very simplistically you start to see where the weak link in the chain is and you start to train it and invariably it's not where the tissue sources uh, are kind of global overriding comment which I should have made earlier was most elite level athletes we actually find get injured where they're strongest and not where they're weakest because they compensate to their strongest area which is their path of least resistance most of the, the sort of aspiring athletes get injured where they're weak because they're trying to produce force and they just don't have that capacity to do it and they don't quite have the same patterning and compensation strategies so we'd be looking for that talk and we'd look at that both from handheld dyno point of view or using something like a Kanger tech or using some other kind of metric to, to measure it and we would also have something functional but we would probably be going more down can I do a split squat for a certain amount of reps and we have particular protocols around split squatting and developing that torque around the pelvis that we look for um, so again we've got something that's functional which should be correlated and then when we get to return to running we're then now moving to this kind of vertical force sort of element. So what's their isometric squat like? What's their peak plantar flexion force like? Um, have they got some RSI, some um, reactive strength index markers that we can look at as sort of preemptive towards running so that we know that they're getting close back to the physical capability. But then we start to expand it a little bit more. So we start to say, right, well, what does right hip flexion to left hamstring look like or left hip extension torques? It's not just left hamstring. When you're measuring on a on a Kanga Tech or a handheld dyno, you're looking at flexion torque to extension torque, which is not muscle specific. But that's critical. So it's that flexion to extension torque on the opposite limb that then becomes critical to running that I'm not sure that is always looked at from a reduction in risk. And if we haven't got that flexion to extension torque right, then you're going to ask other muscles to kick in to try and take over. And that's when you're more likely to get um, overload again as well. So we're shifting it more towards that top end functional question away from the pathology as we go through that rehab phase. One of the last questions I'm going to come to on this before we, we dive off in another direction. Key ratios, key ratios, James, that you mentioned there. Is there yeah. any ones that you would pick out in particular? Any, any ratios that you could give us an insight into what you're actually looking for between these um, muscles? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think there's, again, there's two ways of answering that. I, we started doing ratio. Oh, I can't remember. We started doing ratios probably about 10 years ago. 
And I was very lucky when we were, I was in the IRU, which we kind of started in 2013, 2014. We had two amazing SNC coaches. So Nick Chad, who was at um, Man City, has now gone to yes. um, Salzburg, I think he's gone to in Austria. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Fionn McPartlin, who's gone over to um, uh, Red Bull in LA. So they both, I was fortunate enough to work with them. We collected about 1,600 data sets across Olympic athletes that we haven't published, right? Because it's Olympic sport. And if I publish it, then, you know, Ender King and the Irish come out and beat me, which is um, <laughs> which is not something we want to happen. No, I'm just joking, Ender, just teasing you. Um, but yeah, so like we've got all these data sets. And so I think a lot of it comes down to there's some very sort of global terms. So we would generally say, you know, adductors, you want about 30 to 35 kilograms and abductors, you want a little bit less than the adductors, right? As a simple sort of message. However, when you really look at the data that's out there, and I go back to Professor Newman's work from 2010, where he looked at torque ratios across the hip. So without looking at specific numbers, but extension should be your primary torque producing force. Then flexion should be 10% behind extension. Adduction should be 20% behind extension. And then abduction should be 20% behind adduction. And abduction should be 60% of extension, all right, as a ratio. So I'm not necessarily worried about the top force. So can you produce 25, 30, 35 kilos? What I want is the balance from extension to flexion, adduction to abduction. And the big thing we see is lots of people focusing on abduction because they think that's right and for whatever reason and I think that's perfectly reasonable but the abduction to extension ratio needs to be right you should be 40% stronger into extension than you are into abduction as a general ratio across the hip I think the then all of those things need to be factored into size of the individual limb length in particular femur length their body weight their height all those sort of things come into play because it affects their torque at the hip um, my final comment would be is I'm not again convinced that we've quite got this right uh, and we've started shifting this way a little bit more the last two three years in the sense that we've had we've got these numbers that are out there and they're all relative to pathology my comment would be well we want to look at those numbers relative to performance and relative to running mechanics so rather than have I got your adductors up to 30 kilograms in order for the way you run and you kick what do we know is your norm or what do we know is your ideal of where we need to get you to in order for that that part of your body to be able to tolerate it? And I think we're still exploring that at the moment and understanding that a little bit more from a, a research and or practical perspective. So very simply, I would say um, it's about ratio around the individual hip rather than absolute numerical number. And those ratios should be looked at and respected. And then it's about um, the relative number relative towards the demands that that player can produce. So, you know, a guy that's moving at nine meters a second versus someone who, or greater than nine meters a second versus someone who can't quite move at that speed at seven meters a second, then those ratios need to be different because the demands on the tissue are really different. Superb. What a rundown for the last 50 minutes on hip and grinds. We're just going to take, take a little right turn though. I was like, no, by the guys at Hytro who have been a part of the, the, the podcast for the last uh, month or two, which has been great. Brilliant. That you are now involved with those guys. Tell me how that came about. Um, 
Yeah, just again, very fortuitous. I sound like I'm just one of these, you know, guys that floats around in the ether and <laughs> has this lazy fair act, uh, attitude and I just kind of um, fall into things. Look, very fortuitous. Met some guys um, through the clinic, actually, uh, and had started having some conversations, got introduced to, to Warren and Raj um, with part of Hytro. And again, it's just something I've always been interested in. It's really interesting in the sense that we started using occlusion work back in I can remember the first athlete we used it with was back in 2007 um, who'd had a, a knee operation before uh, what would have been the world championships in Osaka in there for a long jumper and I was very lucky that I worked with Raphael Brandon who um, you may know so he's got PhD in running mechanics but also recently head of research and development for ECB and then Pete Atkinson was the guy that really brought it over. So as the EIS kind of lead. And and again, we were very lucky that Duncan French was also part of that setup. And Duncan's obviously got a PhD in that kind of area. So, you know, we had kind of a brain's trust around it. And we started playing with it a lot back in those days. And then over the various years, I've been exposed to different sort of devices with uh, sort of Suji being one of them and um, people asking me to sort of what was my thoughts on this sort of stuff. And I've always we've always used it. And then Hytra came in and it just made a lot of sense. You've got a piece of equipment that can be embedded into clothing. So it's user friendly. It's quick and it's efficient. Um, in terms of what you're doing there's lots of safety protocols and research that's going into that kind of area to to maximize how everybody uses it and as with every product it will be evolving over a period of time um, and it just becomes it brings something that's cost effective to the market and to athletes and to um, the general population as well that want to use that kind of device so it just made good sense and I thought you know with my experience and background and my interest in doing new challenging sort of things that would be well look can I can I add some value to this and can I make it um, available to the population in a safe and sort of cost-effective way and so yeah it just made perfect sense to get involved. Perfect where do you think it fits in terms of performance and I suppose your area which is predominantly rehab where do you think blood flow restriction fits? I think it fits across the board so I, I think I don't think my comment, again, if we go back to my comment I made earlier, it's really easy to stop people from getting injured. You just don't train hard, right? So, you know, you, if you're looking at, I would say, performance, rehab, prehab, you know, that, that whole sort of thing, it's about understanding the individual, understanding where their risks are, and you're always kind of topping up and balancing everything with an individual. Um, certainly, uh, i give you a slightly different, slightly off-the-cuff example, but I just think it's a, a fascinating conversation. Like, Raf, Brandon, and I years ago um when we were dealing with christine so she had bilateral achilles injuries and achilles tears in 2006 came back won the world championships in 07 in um and then olympic gold in 08 and then in 2009 she got a nasty pars fracture with a high hamstring tendinopathy on the right hand side and in 2010 she had a complete rupture of a rec fem with a 10 centimeter retraction and 80 percent muscle loss which is really significant injury for a sprinter and in those days this is 2010 we didn't surgically repair them which we would probably surgically repair a lot of them now we managed it conservatively and Raf and I sat down and went um you know how do we get this athlete back from this injury and get her to perform at the highest level and we we did that over you know 
a little bit of light refreshment because that was the right way to kind of <laughs> stimulate the brain. And we kind of came up with this equation, and I don't think it's set in stone, but we basically said um, force production slash, gener slash um, absorption plus rate of force development equals tensile load plus elasticity as a way of trying to balance the individual. And we knew that Christine could produce an absolute bucket load of force. She was a 70 kilo athlete that could squat 130 kilos. She could hang clean 90. You know, she's ridiculous. Her rate of force development was terrible. Well, not terrible, that's been horrible to her. That's in inappropriate. Just her rate of force development could do with some work. It's probably the right way to put it. Her elasticity could do with some work. Like she spent a long time on the ground but she did that because she was so strong and that could allow her. So going back to traditional running mechanics, getting her to do quick foot contact is not the right way to go. And actually you increase the risk of injury. But her tensile capability was off the chart. So she could produce a lot of force through a very big range. And what we found with Christine was, well, if we got her too strong, we actually increased her risk of injury and she got slower. So this whole balance of, well, performance versus rehab for us, just taking that one variable within a simultaneous equation that we produced, right, we could, you know, dial it up, dial it down, depending on where we were. And we know, and we found out we needed to get her strong enough to reduce the risk of injury, but not too strong that actually her performance went down, but strong enough that her performance was still good enough. So it's that constant battle. So to specifically ask it or answer it on BFR, I think, look, what we're really looking at is how do we optimize metabolic capability within the muscle and muscle tensile and force producing capabilities. And there's a number of ways we can do that, whether that's be producing high force through the muscle, whether that's eccentric load for that non-contractile tissue, whether it's BFR to increase the cross-sectional area and the viscoelastic property, whether it's BFR to help with um, capillarization and mitochondrial density, which would then help with ATP and efficiency of how you use those myofibrils. I think there are so many different ways you can use it. And I think we're only just scratching the surface now of to all the performance and rehab and then recovery stages of how we can use it and where it fits across that whole spectrum. I mean, we've just been really lucky. I've been working with a Premier League footballer who's had a very nasty sort of... Um, injury at the moment and rehabbing back and so we've been using BFR at rest at the moment um, of an evening after doing four hours or five hours worth of intensive rehab every day and just chilling out at, in an evening to try and help with recovery and like he's done a lot of load he's done I think eight different weight training sessions within about four days with just focusing around hip and thigh function and um, he's had barely any DOMS from that and we've pushed him reasonably hard on some of those levels so I think there's some really fascinating areas to come out of BFR at the moment that we're just scratching the surface and so again that's another reason to be involved in Hytro because it just allows us to experiment and explore and look at all the performance and the cross links between performance and, and rehab and medicine. Yeah I think it's an interesting area I've had a couple of people on the podcast discuss it in length but I would guess that there'll be more in the future as it yeah, as it so. kind of definitely takes hold from yeah. from people through people like Hytro. Yes. So James, thank you very much. I know you've got a call in twenty five minutes. So I wanted to give you a little bit of a buffer because I know you're back to back on uh, on many Sorry. things in in your professional life. If anyone wants to catch up with you, get get to know more about your business ventures, education, what you're doing day to day, where's the best place for people to uh, to get hold of you? um yeah so just just i'd just say just contact the clinic um the it's probably the easiest thing so 
info at chhp.com and that'll come straight through to me um my personal email is jamesmore at chhp.com uh all one word all lowercase so yeah no problems at all i'm happy to take anything just um as i say all the time just appreciate that i am busy so i nearly always scan every email uh but i then maybe might take a day or two to come back to you or or three or four depending <laughs> on how busy i am at the time and but, yeah. social media james um at jmore physio is uh sort of my twitter handle Perfect. and um yeah amazing well like i said just right at the start i do appreciate you giving up your time because i know you're a very busy man so uh yeah thank you very much thank you very much for your insights and uh good luck with everything that's going forward including your partnership with uh with the guys at hytro thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure i really enjoyed it cheers james cheers rob thanks mate Thanks for tuning in to episode 383 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs, and Satanta College for sponsoring this episode today. As you will have recalled from right at the start of this episode, James has got a horrendously busy diary, so I do really appreciate him fitting me in. And I hope you got as much out of this episode as I did. Absolutely stacked full of information when it comes to hip and groin injuries. So thanks for tuning in, and I will chat to you next week. <laughs>